that. All right. Well, you guys can find your way back to your seats, and uh, you can be seated. We're gonna uh, we're gonna take a few moments here uh, to look into God's Word together. Psalm seventy-seven. And I wonder if you have experienced this, like I have. You ever been in that, had a day, or maybe it was a more than a day, I don't know, but a time when you, you just got your thinking out of whack somehow, and you just couldn't get it right, you know? You just... You knew that you weren't thinking properly. You knew that you weren't in the right kind of place of mind and you weren't where you should be, but you couldn't break out of it. It was like in some sort of a funk and your mind was just kind of stuck in this rut of thinking that was bad thinking and you just couldn't kind of get loose of it. You ever been there? And you knew that you were thinking that way and it wasn't good and you knew that you were responding or speaking wrongly or acting wrongly to people or whatever because... That flows out of your thinking, and you knew that, but you just, it was like, it's like watching a train wreck, you know, you can't do anything about it, you just watch it, and you can't do anything, and, 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 and that, that, I think, is one of those things that we, we sometimes find ourselves in those kind of situations, and, and when we try to deal with that, when we try to deal with those difficult situations and our thinking is clouded and sometimes wrong, it's unbiblical and it's not godly and, and we struggle with that and we, we want to do what's right, we want to think right and we want to kind of break out of it, but we don't know how or, or maybe what we try to do doesn't seem to work. And it's been kind of interesting since the beginning of the year, we've been looking here at this third book of the Psalms starting in Psalm 73. And, and as we've gone through, we've, we've, we've kind of dealt with the psalmist struggling with what we might consider some potentially bad thinking, right? Questioning if God really is good in Psalm 73. Questioning if God really is paying attention in Psalm 74. You know, questioning if God is really, uh, uh, you know, going to do justice, and when in Psalm 75 and 76. And, and as we've gone through these Psalms, we've, we've kind of seen that each one of them suggests to us an answer, uh, something that we need to understand about God. You know, Psalm 73, the nearness of God. The fact that, that even when it doesn't seem like God is near, He is near to His people. And there's that assurance. We have that reminder that God is near. And Psalm 74. The Psalm 74, very important theology for us to understand that God is sovereign. That God in His, uh, in his plan is always being worked out as He has been since the beginning. Psalm 75 tells us again really declares to us very strongly that God is the judge, that he's the one who determines what is success and failure, that God is the one who makes the ultimate and final judgment. And Psalm 76 reminds us that God judges at his perfect time, at the proper time, that God does these things. And that God in Psalm 76 is is uh, this judge who rules over everything, this exalted one. 
not just in Israel, but over the whole earth. And we have these principles, but here's the thing, right? We know these right things, and we have these right truths that we believe about God. What happens when having the right theology comes up short? What happens when we know all the right things about God? Yes, we know that God is near to his people all the time. We know that to be true, and, and therefore we know we can pray to God, and we pray. And, and, and we know that God is sovereign, and he rules over the world, and he does his will and accomplishes his plan, and we know that. And we know that God is the judge, that he has a plan. That there's going to come a day at the right time when he is going to reach in and take hold of the thread of time and, and stop it. And he's going to break in and he's going to judge and he's going to do righteousness. And all of the wicked are going to be put down. I mean, we're reading about this in Jeremiah today. The people of Israel being assured. The people who are left there that hear Jeremiah's message are being assured that Babylon who has reveled in and has has taking pleasure in their ransacking of Israel. That their day is coming. And so we have these assurances from God. Don't worry. The guy who is out there boasting and bragging about how great he is and how nobody can stop him and he's the best and he's the greatest and he always seems to get away with whatever he wants to do and there's no justice, guess what? We know that's not true. We know these things to be true. We have the right belief. We have the right theology. We understand that God is sovereign. God is mighty. God is majestic and powerful and glorious. And we all say amen to those things. But... What happens? When that just doesn't seem to be enough. Because the the risk that we run with Psalm 73 to 76 is that we we can read these psalms, we can meditate on these truths, we can accept them, we can believe them, we can say, yes, I believe all these things are true. And we can still struggle to find peace. What do we do then? Well, let's look at Psalm 77. This is another Psalm of Asaph. Notice what he says there in the first three verses. I cried out to God with my voice. To God with my voice. And he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Salah. Before we go on, let, let's pray and just ask God to help us to see and understand the truth here of his word. Heavenly Father, again, we uh, come to you this morning and we ask your help. Uh, we ask that you would illuminate your word, that, that the truth of it would stand out to us that we would see what it is you're trying to communicate here. Lord, help us not to get hung up on the details, but help us to see and understand the message that you're trying to drive home to our hearts today. And I pray that you'd help us to receive it, to believe the truth, even when it is difficult and, humanly speaking, impossible to believe. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts. 
even as we meditate on your truth today. We'll give you the praise for it. Because we can't do this ourselves. We need you. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. These opening verses present to us a problem, a challenge. The psalmist here, he says twice in the opening lines, I cried out to God with my voice. That's kind of an interesting thing to say. I mean, what else are you going to cry out with? I cried out with my voice, he says. He's emphasizing the fact here that this is out loud. It's not just in his heart. He's speaking. He's out loud. He's verbalizing to God what his concern is, what his problem is. And he says, I cried out with my voice. And he gave ear to me. That that, uh, translation there in the last line of verse 1, he gave ear to me, uh, is, is, is probably better translated that he may give ear to me. Because the, 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 the driving force of this verse of the psalmist saying, I cried out loud to God so that he would hear me. He's not saying that God doesn't hear us when we pray silently in our hearts. But again, he's understanding here. We've got to understand the circumstance. The psalmist is saying, I, I cried out to God. I, I aired my complaints. I prayed and I let God hear me. So that he would listen. Why? Well, because that's how prayer works, right? We pray. We cry out. We lift our voice to God. And what does God do? Well, he listens. He hears what we say, right? That's how this, this whole thing works. But this is the thing. If you look at the next couple of verses, it makes it very clear that it's not working. Right? And he says, In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. So again, this is a good thing. We would say, yes, this is a good thing for you to do. Right? When you find yourself in the day of trouble, what should you do? Seek the Lord. When you find yourself hurting or struggling, and, and there's, 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 there's you know, difficulty or distress going on in your life or you're 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 struggling with despair you know what you, you need to seek the lord we would all say that absolutely seek the lord cry out to the lord and the psalmist says he says my hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing verse two you get both the day and the night in the day of my trouble and at night my hand stretched out this he says listen i was constant i was praying in the day at night all the time I remembered God and was troubled. I remembered God and was troubled. That word remembered there is not just an action of the mind. It really has to do with uh, um, uh, speaking of it. It's, it's calling to mind, but it's through speaking. It's, it's I, I spoke to God. I didn't turn away from God. I didn't forget God. I spoke to God. I directed my prayer to God. He said, I was troubled. The end of verse 2, he said, my soul refused to be comforted. Um, That expression of being comforted is the idea of 
of accepting something you can't change. You know, you find peace and comfort because you say, well, this is the way things are. I'm going to accept my circumstances and I can find some comfort, some rest there, right? I can find some peace in that. But the psalmist says, I couldn't find peace in that. My soul refused that. My, my inner person refused to be at peace with the circumstances. So, I'm, so he's telling us what's going on here. He's being very open with us. He, there's some sort of distress. He doesn't tell us what it is. Some sort of distress that he's under. And what does he do? He, he prays. He cries out to God. He lifts his hands day and night. He's praying to God. He is, he is constantly remembering God. And yet his soul refuses to be at peace. And he is troubled in his spirit. He says, I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You see, the challenge is there are times. There are times when we seek the Lord. Times when we cry out to him, when we pray. We pray hard, and it just doesn't work. And the psalmist here is expressing a circumstance where praying harder just doesn't work. And so he's trying to find some sort of peace. He's trying to find some sort of some sort of calmness for his spirit, some sort of comfort for his soul. And he describes praying diligently, praying fervently. And yet, it doesn't work. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had that kind of, uh, of experience before where you've prayed and poured out your heart to God. You've done what worked in the past. You know, it's always worked before. We just we pray, we give it to the Lord, and we can be at peace. But maybe... There's a time when that doesn't work, when it fails to bring peace. Well, what do we do then? Well, notice the psalmist continues in verses 4 through 6. He says, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. <clears throat> Here the psalmist's thoughts seem to turn inward. He seems to be considering his relationship to God. The experience that he has of a, of, of trusting in God and of, of praising and worshiping God. He talks here about, uh, about remembering the works or considering, rather, the days of old. Talking about not, uh, it's just simply days of old is simply expression referring to the, what came before. So he's not necessarily saying like ancient times. He's just saying earlier, before this. I'm in this moment of distress and despair, but I'm just, as I stop and I think about before, I think about what my relationship to God was before. I think about the years that have gone before this. That are all in the past now, but the times that were good. Verse 6, he talks about remembering his song. In the, there were times when I could sing, he says, in the night. There were times when I could sing praise to God in the night. 
And now all I can do is lift my hands and groan and cry out. And even that doesn't find me any peace. He says, I meditate within my heart. The idea here again, that, notice in verse 6, he says, I call to remembrance. It's a similar kind of uh, language to verse 3. And then again, it has the same idea. He's speaking with his mouth. This is not quiet. He's murmuring to himself. He's speaking to himself. He's, he's, he's remembering these former times, the former experiences that he had with God. But verse 4 makes it clear that this is also unproductive. He says, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Maybe, that, maybe he's saying that he can't sleep. You hold my eyelids open. One commentator I read said, not that he, he's not saying here that he can't sleep. He's already determined not to sleep. That was very clear from verse 2, that he has prayed the night through. So it's not that he can't sleep. He's not sleeping. But the issue is that it, it's as if there's nothing to see because God isn't doing anything. And he's been praying and he's been pouring out his heart before God. He's been asking God to do something and then nothing's happened. Praying harder didn't work. Relying on personal experience, that's what we do sometimes. We try to think back about what has God done. We reminisce. We, we try to think back about the experience that we've had with God. We find here that that is also insufficient grounds for faith. You know, one night I can sing praise to God. And the next all I can do is raise my hands and beg God for mercy and ask God to do something and, 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 and I lose sleep and all of these things. My experience is constantly changing. What I experienced with God before may be very different from where I'm at right now. And the psalmist seems to be describing that here. And if you can't if you try to build your faith in God on the foundation of your experiences, you're going to find that they're always shifting. Your feelings, your perspective, your, your point of view, it's always changing. And so what seemed to work before doesn't work anymore. And the psalmist here is describing a circumstance I guess the best analogy I could come up for to think of it is it, spiritually is like being in the doldrums. I don't know if you're familiar with that expression or not. There's a poem that I remember reading when I was in school, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Coleridge. He writes about a man who ends up on a ship and he ends up, they end up in the doldrums. And in the, the, I won't go into all the details of it, but the ship is stuck because there's no wind. They're in the doldrums, perfectly calm. And without any wind, you can't sail. And so they're stuck. How long can you last like that? Well, the poem kind of ends kind of badly because it doesn't go well for them. But spiritually, it's there, there may be times when we can get in those kind of circumstances when it's like we're stuck in the doldrums. There's no wind. There's nothing to move us along. And we feel like we're just stuck there. 
And we can't break out and we can't, we don't know what to do. And this is what I was saying earlier is that our thinking can, can begin to kind of spiral downward. We know it's not good and we know it's not right and healthy, but we begin, we begin to see these questions that come to our mind and we don't know how to answer them. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 7 through 9. He says, they ask some questions. Will the Lord cast us off forever? And will he, will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Now, we know the right answer to these questions, don't we? I mean, we could sit down if I wrote these out on a paper and said, here's a quiz. I'm going to give you a quiz about God. Answer these questions. Will the Lord cast us off forever? What's the answer? No. Will he be favorable no more? That's a weird one to answer. Will he be favorable no more? The answer is no. Has his mercy ceased forever? No. Has his promise, oh, this is important, has his promise failed forevermore? No. Has God forgotten to be gracious? No. Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? No. We know, but here's the thing, see, we could all get 100% on the quiz. The psalmist could get 100% on the quiz, but he's still crying out to God. He's still troubled. He still can't find peace and rest in his spirit. You see, what's the problem with that? That's what I said at the beginning. You can have right theology. We know the right answers to the questions. And it still comes up short. Because in actual living, in day-to-day life, knowing the right answers about God doesn't always help us. It's, it's not always sufficient to just have the textbook and know the right answers. The psalmist here, he's asking these questions. And if we were, if we were to go back in time to when things were good, he could sit down and, and objectively think about these. Oh, those are easy questions. Of course, we know the answer to them. In fact, they're kind of ridiculous questions. It's ridiculous to say, has God's mercy ceased? Can God's mercy possibly cease? No. (laughs) No. Are you kidding me? The infinite, eternal, all-merciful God has a store of mercy that is so abundant that we could never exhaust it in a million lifetimes. Has his promise failed? Has his promise failed once? No. So certainly, we can't say his promise has failed forevermore. <laughs> he's never even failed once. I mean, again, the God whose word is truth. We know these things to be true. The psalmist knows these things to be true. But the problem is, when we're in that midst of the spiritual doldrums, in those times when we have, we've tried everything, right? We've prayed, and we've, and we've, we've, we've gone back, and we've you know, tried to count our blessings, and we've tried to think about what God has done, we've tried to meditate on, on our past, and okay, God, you've been faithful before, we know you'll be faithful in the future, and all of those are good things, and we've done all those things, and we still find ourselves 
in this moment where we're overwhelmed by doubts. The psalmist is describing for us here. These questions are easy to answer when we're not in the middle of distress and despair and spiraling downward in this kind of thinking. But when we're in that moment, when we're in the midst of that kind of stress and trouble, these questions begin to be more difficult. I mean, we know what we're supposed to say. But deep down in our heart of hearts, there may be times where we begin to think, God, have you, have you run out? I mean, have I just, have I just asked too much? Have I, have I had to call on you one too many times? for forgiveness, for mercy? Have my prayers been just too ambitious? Have I just, I just stretched a little bit too far, more than you were willing to go? I mean, I know your word is true, but it just doesn't seem like it's working. I don't know. And we begin to have these doubts, and they can begin because we're in the midst of this difficult, trying time, and What was so clear to us before is not at this moment. And that's what we're seeing. In this moment of distress, what what used to be very clear, questions that were easy to answer are now difficult. Because deep in our heart of hearts, there's, there's doubt. So what do we do? What's the solution? Well, The interesting thing about Psalm 77 is the psalmist doesn't really step back and say, here's how you solve the problem. He does show us a personal example, and I think it's helpful. But he doesn't really step back and say, okay, here. Here's your three steps, easy solution. Probably because there is not such a thing. Praying harder doesn't work. I mean, just being more determined that I'm going to just take hold of this and I'm going to just, you know, I'll pray all night if I have to. He's already done that. Trying to think back about your personal experiences with God and building some building something on top of that, that didn't work. The doubts are still there. In fact, they're stronger than ever. But look at what he says in verses 10 through 12. And I said, this is my anguish. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. The psalmist commits himself to something here. But before he does that, he says there in verse 10, and it's interesting... This is my anguish. This is my infirmity. This is my my trouble. He confesses this. He, he, He doesn't pretend that everything's okay. He doesn't pretend that this is normal and healthy in the way that we as believers ought to be on a regular basis. He recognizes this is extraordinary. This is a situation that is not normal. It's not something that should characterize believers as a regular, normal uh, kind of thinking and pattern. 
I mean, we ought to be able to pray fruitfully. We ought to be able to go to the Lord and pray and find peace in his presence. We ought to be able to do that. That's normal. We ought to be able to reflect on what God has done in our life and be encouraged by that. That's normal. That's good. You should be able to think about what God has done and go, wow, yeah, God has been good to me. But there are times when that doesn't work, when that's not sufficient. And that's what the psalmist is saying. There's something wrong here. But, but he's not turning away from God. He's not abandoning his faith. He's not, he's not just wallowing in self-pity. Notice what he does here. He commits himself to something specific. He says, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. That's an interesting expression. The years of the right hand of the Most High. Of course, the expression right hand is is the idea of strength, right? Because we talk about a person's right hand. It's, I mean, I'm left-handed, so it's a little bit awkward for me. But most people, you think about their right hand as their dominant hand. That's the hand of strength. What's interesting is the first time this expression is used of God, the right hand, speaking about God, is actually Exodus 15. Why don't you just turn there with me? Keep your finger in Psalm 77. We'll get back there in a minute. But turn with me to Exodus 15. Because in Exodus 15, we have a fascinating um, passage of Scripture. What we have is we have the song that the children of Israel sang after they had crossed the Red Sea. After they had been able to walk through between the waters that were walled up on either side, walk through on dry ground, after the, the, the army of Pharaoh, remember, in their chariots had ridden down into the sea expecting to cross and just to take out the Israelites. They were going to capture these people and, 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 and recapture them. And, of course, we know what happened. God um, caused their, their chariot wheels to come off, caused them to be mired in the mud at the bottom of the sea, and then they were stuck, and then the water came crashing down on top of them and drowned them and killed them. And God very powerfully and dramatically delivered his people. So much so that 40 years later, when they get to the city of Jericho, Rahab says, the people here are terrified of you because we heard about what happened at the Red Sea. So 40 years later, people are still talking about this. It was so dramatic. But the song that the people of Israel sing is really interesting. They talk about singing, verse uh, 1, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. And notice verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. This is the first time in the Bible that this this term right hand is used of God. And it's speaking about his deliverance of his people at the Red Sea. You you, you can see what it says. Your right hand has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And skip down to verse 12. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. This... 
song here in Exodus 15 is the first time that expression, right hand, is used of God. To speak about his great deliverance. And so when the psalmist speaks of it here and he says, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. He's he's trying to get us in our minds to go back with him to something that happened Many, many, many years, many centuries before he lived. And certainly many centuries before us. And to meditate on and remember what God did in delivering his people at the flood. I'm sorry, at the the Red Sea. Well, how would the psalmist have known about that? Where would he have discovered this truth about God's Mighty and powerful right hand. Anybody? Where would he have learned about it? He, okay, he wasn't there. It was passed down. In what form? In the scriptures, right? I mean, the psalmist is saying, I'm in the middle of this time of great distress. I'm praying, I'm reflecting on my own life and experience, and it's, I still have these doubts. I can't, get, I can't deal with them. I don't know what to do. So what does he turn his mind to? He turns his mind to Scripture. He turns to meditate on God's Word. Because that's where this record is found. That's what he's talking about here. When he says, I'm going to call to mind, I'm going to remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Go back and think. He's not saying in my lifetime, not the things God has done for me. He's saying, go back and look at the word of God. What does the scripture say God has done? He's delivered his people. The right hand of the Most High. Verse 11, he talks here about his works and his wonders. In fact, he uses in verse 11, that covenant name, Yahweh. Actually, he just uses the short version, Yah. Which again is first introduced to us there in Exodus. And the psalmist says, The wonders of old, the wonders that you've done. And he says, I'll meditate and talk of your deeds. Again, verse 12, speaking here, just as he was doing before, just as before he was, he was muttering to himself, he was talking to himself about his own experiences, trying to encourage himself. He says, I'm going to do that with your truth of who you are and what you've done. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to speak about your deeds. I'm going to talk about the things that you've done. And specifically referring here to the, the truths that are recorded in the word of God. And so the psalmist turns his focus and his attention on the word of God. That's where he commits himself here in verses 10 through 12. And verses 13 through the end of of the psalm is really kind of like a, a closing refrain. As he begins to describe what this... What these deeds are, what this 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 great and awesome wonders that God has, has done, what they are, and notice what He says there, beginning in verse thirteen: "Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary." That word "sanctuary" there just means holiness. It can refer to the holy place. It could be talking here about the tabernacle, the temple, but it 
It also may be just referring to God's holiness in the sense of his, his otherness. God who is unique. God who is one of a kind. And the second part of the verse seems to suggest that. He says, who is so great a God as our God? Now, what is it that makes God different? What is it that makes God different and separates him from everyone else? From all the other would-be gods. Well, notice what he says, verse 14. You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Salah. Again, he's continuing to refer to the deliverance of the children of Israel. How God redeemed them from Egypt. And brought them out and made them a nation. And he continues to describe that in verse 16. Describing here very vividly and graphically this uh, deliverance at the Red Sea. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. You get the picture here. He repeats it twice. The waters saw you. God, you appeared. And it was as if the waters began to tremble and twist and, and be disrupted. He says in verse 17, the clouds poured out water, the sky sent out a sound, your arrows flashed about. That's the the lightning, the thunder. You You can see and hear the presence of God. The voice of your thunder, verse 18, was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. The psalmist here, as he's meditating on the truth of God's word, as he's reflecting and remembering the great, mighty acts of God's deliverance in the past, he's finally found something that is substantial enough. You see, that's the issue. Because praying harder, more personal effort isn't sufficient. Relying on your personal experiences of faith is not sufficient. But then he considers and meditates on the truth of the word of God. That he finds to be a sufficient foundation. The word of God tells us how God redeemed his people. Right? That's what the psalmist is saying here. And from his perspective, the redemption that he looks back to is the deliverance from Egypt. God redeemed his people. From our perspective, it's a little bit different. I mean, we can look back to the Exodus and we... We should, as we consider the truth of God's redemptive power that was seen. But we have an even greater example to consider, don't we? I mean, just think about this. And there's definitely some similarities. God delivered his people from their enemies by means of the Red Sea. He parted the sea, allowed his people to go, and then rescued them by means of the sea. But it was also by means of the sea that God judged Pharaoh and his armies, wasn't it? Because it was that same sea that God used to destroy the strength of Pharaoh in judgment. And so that same thing was the means of deliverance for his people and of judgment. Well, how great is our God? He's so great that he can use the same means 
to deliver his people and to judge his enemies. And he didn't do it just once. Because again, there's Jesus Christ nailed to that cross of wood, hanging there on that hill outside the gate of the city of Jerusalem as people walked by and as people crowded around and mocked and scorned him. There's Jesus Christ bleeding and dying on that cross. And that cross was the means by which God delivered his people. Right? It was the cross that was essential. It was the cross that, 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 that paid, on the cross that Jesus Christ paid that penalty for our sin that we couldn't pay. But at the same time, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus' death on that cross meant the deliverance of his people, but it also meant the judgment, the destruction of his enemy. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15 about the enemy who is death. And he says, death has been defeated. In, in Colossians, he talks about, about uh, the, the, the spiritual enemies. Think about Satan and the demons and the, the, the spiritual forces that are arrayed against God and against his people. In Colossians, Paul tells us that Jesus took our sins, he nailed them to the cross, he wiped those things completely away. And in so doing, he made a spectacle of the enemies that were arrayed against us. Those spiritual enemies. In fact, uh, in Colossians, Paul describes it as a victory parade. That Christ, in his death on the cross, he took Satan and his enemies and, his, and, and, their, and their forces, and he took them around on a victory parade. Not their victory, his victory. He was showing off. Colossians says... In Colossians, Paul says that, that, that Christ disrobed them and then paraded them around. That's the victory over the enemy. And it was the same means as the deliverance of his people. See, this is what God has done. And it doesn't matter how you feel today. It doesn't matter about what your experience is in this moment. What matters is that you have the truth of the word of God as a secure and stable foundation for faith. See, that's what the psalmist comes back to. And I would submit that's what we need to come back to continually. We need to trust in this God who saves. That's why we meditate on the word of God. We come back to the truth of the word of God and then on that basis we can have faith. You say, well, the Israelites, they trusted God to deliver them from Egypt. God did rescue them through the Red Sea. But you know, it's interesting that their faith in obeying and walking through that Red Sea, trusting that they could get to the other side safely, it didn't mean it was over. I mean, they still had to wander the wilderness. They still had to enter into Canaan. They still had to take the land that God had promised them. They still had to go into a wilderness where there wasn't enough food and there wasn't enough water. And then, because of their sin, they had to wander for 40 years. They had to get up every day and go out and collect food, trusting that there'd be more tomorrow because it could only take enough for today. 
And then on the day before the Sabbath, they had to take enough for two days, trusting that it would last, the only time it would ever last, more than one day. It would last two days, so they'd have enough for the Sabbath day and the day after. Or, I'm sorry, for that day and the Sabbath day. I mean, it wasn't over just because they, well, they trusted God. They, God redeemed them, went through the Red Sea. Everything was over and done. It wasn't like that. Any more than it's over the minute we trust in Christ. You see, that's the thing, right? Sometimes we want, to, we want to believe that all we do is trust in Christ and everything will just kind of work out from there and everything will just kind of be easy. And, you know, we'll just kind of coast on through to the end and everything will just kind of work out. Like a TV show that everything wraps up in 30 minutes and it's good. No loose ends, everything's ready to go. This is not how it works, though, is it? You see that we have to come back to the truth. And there's one final truth here that's important because notice he ta- he's talking here about the deliverance and the, the fact that God has redeemed his people. And that's so important for us to meditate on that truth that the Bible tells us that God has redeemed his people. We can have absolute confidence in that. We can find confidence in that even when nothing else works. But look at the last verse. And this is interesting too. He says, you, he closes, this is how he closes the psalm. It's a, he says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. They were the flock, you were the shepherd. And you led them. See, that's, that's the life of faith that the, that the psalmist here is kind of pointing to. He doesn't come to the end of the psalm and go, oh, I just, I thought about this for a little bit and then everything was good. And all of a sudden I was like, whew, we're done. No, what I came to realize is God's word tells me that he has redeemed his people. But God's word also tells me that he's the shepherd guiding the flock. And here I am, one of the sheep. And that's what this is. He's guiding, I'm following. That's where I'm at today. And so the resolution, there really isn't one here. The psalmist doesn't come to it and say, okay, now everything's oof, weights off my shoulders, I'm good, everything's kind of good to go. But what he's doing is he's gaining this understanding from the truth of the word of God. It's not an easy answer. It's not like a take two of these and call me in the morning, you'll feel better, you know, don't worry about it. Everything is going to be just fine from here on out. But the reassurance is that we can trust God. Trust God to redeem his people. Trust God to lead his people. To shepherd his people. God did. He provided for them. You know, again, we don't have time to kind of work this, to really kind of flesh this out. But, you know, Moses and Aaron weren't perfect. They were far from it. I mean, think about Aaron, a man who didn't have enough fortitude to say no when the people came and said, make us a golden calf. A man who didn't have enough guts to say, that's wrong, and I'm not going to do it. And then you got Moses, and what does Moses do? He gets angry, loses his temper, causes himself, uh, causes him to do something other than what God told him to do. And as a result, Moses is never even allowed to set foot in the promised land. Moses and Aaron, neither one of them, allowed to make it into the promised land. They can't get there. 
They were not perfect. And yet, that was God's plan. They were the, they were the human instruments that he was using to shepherd his people. And there is that, if you want to say a sense of peace, a sense of resolve that comes here in understanding how this plan of God works out. Yeah, we can say God is sovereign. We can say God's working on his plan. We can say there's a plan for judgment. It's coming. But what do we do right now? And that's where the psalmist is at. That's why we meditate on the truth of the word of God. We build our faith on God's word. He is the one who saves. He is the one who leads and guides his people. And you can trust him. Even when everything else doesn't work. Because this is the truth and it provides a foundation for your faith. Let's pray.